I would like to ask you a question here. Fire away. I, one of my goals here <laughs> on Ye Gods is that I don't want to ask anyone a question that I would not be willing to answer myself. So imagine that you are sitting alone in a car, let's say, in a completely remote location, and no one can see you or hear you. You're there by yourself for an hour. Okay, and during that hour, you spend your time thinking about all the people in your life who you hate. And for that hour, you're busy, you're furious, and you're hating them. Now, imagine that instead you spend the hour in a positive mood, loving everyone and everything, getting ready to do great things. Do you think that that has an effect on the universe? Hello and welcome to Ye Gods. I'm Scott Carter. That voice you just heard was of author Jack Wilson. His books include The Race and The Promotion. He's also one of the most literate people I know, which is a good thing because he hosts the very smart, fun, and my personal favorite podcast, The History of Literature. I'm pleased to have him as my guest today as we ponder love and hate cast into the universe. Jack Wilson, welcome to Ye Gods. Thank you for having me. It is so nice to talk to you. I think listeners of History of Literature will know that you were raised in and born in rural Wisconsin. That's right. Small town. What was the faith like in your household as you were being raised, if, if indeed there was any? So the two big games in town, in the town where I grew up, were the Catholic Church and the Lutheran Church. And that kind of divided the community. And then everyone else had a smattering of Protestant churches to pick from. And my family went to one of these underdog churches. The underdog Protestant? <laughs> That's right. And our church, there would maybe be 20 or 30 people there on a Sunday. But I went every week, pretty much. We sang hymns and I attended Sunday school and all of that. Did you participate in other youth leagues or other activities besides church on Sunday? By the time I got to that age, I was already starting to drift away. I remember the confirmation classes being a point where it was becoming a real battle for my mom in particular to keep me interested and attending church. So any of the the more teenage level events and activities and camps and things like that. I was not someone who was going to be going to those. My family briefly was Lutheran during my adolescent years. And for me, a lot of the notion of faith historically or spiritual uh, practices historically has got to do with individuals. So this church, I'm one of five siblings and at this church, there was a, a minister and his very attractive wife who sang in the choir. And they had six children, and the six children coordinated to the time frame of the birth dates of my siblings and I. Mm. And, and, but also we had a hip vicar. Mm. Who, who, young guy, <laughs> and I remember him playing banjo to his own um, song parodies, which had a mm. righteous liberal tint to them. What you just said really resonated with me because when I was eight or nine, 
we had a minister who was coming through and he had just left Yale Divinity School and was sort of a, a, a professor type. And he was doing, he and his wife were doing a couple of years in a rural setting as part of their journey. And then he left after, I mean, he was my hero for a couple of years. He was the reason to go to church and I enjoyed talking to him and, and he knew how to say things in a way that really made sense to me. And then he left because his stint was over and he was replaced by kindly people, but people who were a little more annoyed by questions and who maybe didn't have the same teaching skills or the same patience for children. And I was getting older. And so I was kind of resenting that the people who had replaced him were not on my wavelength the way he had been. And that sort of changed my experience. Yeah, I feel like when those charismatic leaders leave, one finds oneself like the boy at the end of Shane calling to Alan Ladd as he has his horse moves away from the little town and saying, come back. Um, did you, did your family try to talk you back into coming to church regularly or, or, or staying with the fold? Yes, my mother, definitely. It was a, a source of pain for her all through my 20s, in fact, until I got married. And then she shut it off. I think then I was someone else's problem, maybe. She did not respond by trying to help me with the questions I had, but more of a, well, this is how it's going to be attitude, which didn't work. And the one thing she said that I remember reaching me was, she said, this is a great comfort to a lot of people. And I've never disrespected the church. Like I've never, I've never felt like it was my place to criticize others or be sarcastic about it or, or treat it as uh, anything other than a, a genuine good faith human response. And I, I don't know if the, the things in church are true or not. I, I don't know that they can be known, but it's not anything that I, I've always had a lot of respect for the people who go and for prayer and for a lot of the aspects of the more religiously inclined. And when you say that you had questions that the church was not answering for you, what what were they? these questions, and, and did you find answers for them elsewhere? Well, that's the thing. I didn't think—I know there are questions like, well, who made God? Or questions like that that a lot of people stumble across and, and want answers for. I didn't really expect religion to give me those answers. I felt like science couldn't answer some of those questions either, like what was— where did the Big Bang occur or what was, how did something come from nothing? And I felt as if it wouldn't be fair for me to demand those answers from the church. But we were taught that babies who were unbaptized would go to hell or that Buddhists who were living in Thailand should accept Jesus as their savior or face eternal damnation or things like that that struck me as not being consistent with the message of hope and love and faith and all the things that the church that that I thought was good about the church 
seem to me to be undermined by things that seem to be more about getting people to go to church or getting people to go to a particular church. Yeah, I, um, I've now come, even I think before I had a sense that, yes, there is a God, which has been with me now for a few decades, I did have a sense of the practical service of rituals, that weddings and baptisms and bar mitzvahs and funerals and last rites and all of this, I feel like has a sacred place in helping people through the transitions of life. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I actually have kind of a, a neat closing of the circle on that story that I told you earlier about the minister who had been in my congregation when I was eight or nine. When I was getting married, I was in Seattle. And by then he had moved on and had become a divinity professor and was also in Seattle. And so my wife and I, or my fiance and I, were feeling, although she is not religious, probably even less religious than I am, we were feeling like the decision to get married and the forthcoming wedding and marriage in general, it felt like we were cutting across religion's lawn, that it was an we were on their turf. It was feeling sacred. It was feeling like there was something important that a completely a trip to the courthouse, for example, wasn't going to fully capture the way we felt about what we were doing. And so we contacted this man who was no longer performing services, but of course he remembered me and he had kept in touch with my family for all of these years. And he agreed to marry us. And I remember after we met with him, my wife said, yes, he's the guy. This is, this feels right. And so we had more of a religious service because of him and because that was what he was bringing to the table. But it did feel like it was appropriate in those circumstances and just the way we we felt about our wedding and about our marriage he was able to supply it and did he live up to your high notion of him was he did was he still a source of admiration for you yes i think so i think what i appreciated was that he was someone who could live with those questions he didn't mind that i had those questions and for him those were things to wrestle with as well that it didn't like another question i remember having is here's a god who is all good and powerful and knows everything and he hands down commandments, and a lot of them are about worshiping God, right? The first four, I think, are about not taking the Lord's name in vain and, and no other gods. holy, no other gods before me. That's number one, and no false idols. And I can remember thinking, is this the God that I expect to be all good and all powerful? Is this what he commands us to do? I just couldn't reconcile it in my mind with what I expected from a God who was all good and who was that much based in love that he would demand a sort of observance of that. Or it just, to me, I, I don't know, I, I don't mean to to uh, offend anyone, but for me, I just was thinking, well, if I had a... a 
let's say, a terrarium, and I had a bunch of lizards inside, and I was their god, and I was all-powerful, and I was... I supplied all their food and I could end their life with at a moment. And if I was in that position and there was one of the creatures was had put up a picture of me and was was I might smile and I might enjoy that. But if another lizard was spending his time taking care of his sick mother, I would feel like, well, that's just as good, or that's that's maybe an even better way to spend his time. Like I and if I said to you, well, I'm angry at the one who's helping his sick mother because he doesn't put up a picture of me and isn't bowing down and and uh, and treating my special day as a holy day. You would probably think I was vain or that I was, you know, you would see that as a bad quality. And I couldn't get my mind around the idea that out of 10 commandments, four of them were about what looked to me like vanity. Now, you and your wife, I believe, have two sons. Yes. Did the notion of if you were going to indoctrinate them at all, was there a sense in the same way that you had a sense that you were on a neighbor's lawn for marriage? Did you have that sense in the upbringing of your two children? We didn't. We didn't. And I feel, sometimes I feel bad when I realize how little that all the things that I absorbed from going to church and Sunday school, culturally, spiritually, morally, everything that is in me, sometimes I feel bad when I realize how little of that they were subjected to or exposed to or or had a chance to learn. Just stories from the Bible and so on. I think they they know a handful of them, but there are things in me that are pretty deeply rooted that I do attribute to the church going. For example, the story in the Bible, of Jesus tells a story about the woman who goes and gives. She's impoverished, but she donates what she can. And he says that's worth more than the wealthy person who comes and gives maybe a greater amount, but that it's nothing to him. It's trivial to him. And that her donation is is greater. That's the kind of thing that I've taken with me. And I hope that my children have picked it up as well. But I don't know that I would have, I would have, I would feel that as deeply as I do now after having heard that story when I was five and six and seven and, and it really resonating with me. And there's 50 things like that. Do they ever ask you questions that uh, are on the lawn of religion? I think they will ask questions about the universe. They ask questions about Jesus more out of curiosity, I think, than anything. I don't get the sense that they're longing for answers that we haven't been able to provide. So having described your upbringing and and your how you've conducted both the, the wedding and then the upbringing of your kids, where spiritually, when the big questions come into your mind, where are you now? How do you answer them to your own satisfaction? I would like to ask you a question here, because I think this will fire away. I, <laughs> one of my goals here on Ye Gods <laughs> is that I don't want to ask anyone a question that I would not be willing to answer myself. This will help me explain to you how I still feel like I'm a spiritual person in some sense, even though I'm kind of divorced from a church or organized religion. 
So imagine that you are sitting alone in a car, let's say, in a completely remote location, and no one can see you or hear you. You're there by yourself for an hour, okay? And during that hour, you spend your time thinking about all the people in your life who you hate. And for that hour, you're busy, you're furious, and you're hating them. Now, imagine that instead you spend the hour in a positive mood, loving everyone and everything, getting ready to do great things, and then you leave. Now, let's say your life is the exact same before and after that hour in the car. So I'm not saying you probably then went out and helped a bunch of people or that there was some kind of uh, domino effect from this hour. Just that hour in isolation. Do you think that that has an effect on the universe? Because I kind of do. I, <laughs> I shouldn't say I kind of do. I really do. And I don't, th- I don't think like it makes me a better person afterwards. I could, have, I could die at the end of the hour and I would feel like the hour I spent in isolation thinking positively helped the universe become a better place. And it's, I can't explain it. There's no, I have no rational reason or scientific explanation or even really a theological explanation. But my belief is, is kind of like a faith in the sense that I think it, I think it's true without having any, any grounds for believing that it's true. But how could it happen? It has to be there's this other force out there. It has to be something that my mind and my spirit is connected to something bigger than me, which might be God. And I have to believe that it's there because otherwise my little thought experiment couldn't, you know, it wouldn't be true. There'd be no difference between the hour that I spent thinking negatively or thinking positively. This is a fascinating question, and I would say that I have the same conclusion that you do, but let me perhaps venture an explanation that at least seems logical to me. If I'm in the car and I'm thinking good thoughts about people, how much I love the people who in my life who nourish me, let's say, or even people I don't know, but they their music or their art of any kind inspires me. I think that in the hour that following my hour in the car, and when I'm driving back into the town, wherever I live, I think I'm going to be receiving different kinds of thoughts because of that hour spent in gratitude. And I think that if I'm spending an hour in the car alone, thinking hateful thoughts, vengeful thoughts, let's say, against those, I believe, who have done me wrong. I believe that some of those positive, creative ideas will not be coming to the forefront of my consciousness when I drive back into town. That, if anything, it'll be my trying to talk myself off the ledge of my toxic thoughts and just trying to get back to zero. But that if I've gone to a place, and some of this has to do with rituals that I do every day, meditation. I recite the Lord's Prayer with my younger daughter who still lives at home. I'll do that every night, even though I think she's just indulging me. (laughs) I don't think it's connecting to any religious beliefs that she has. 
So I think there is a connection between the things that one puts out and wishes the universe to in some way answer. And I'm not one of those people who, let's say, drives down the street making deals with God for every green light I get if I'm mm -hmm. running late. I, I don't believe that things are on that micro-transactional level in the universe. But I have noticed that sometimes when I, especially during the pandemic, take a long walk or jog and and I am thinking good things about people, I am then, I would say, creative thoughts or good thoughts occur to me. Oh, I should, I should call. I haven't talked to this person in a long time. Let me call them out. Let me ask them now that we're all vaccinated. Let me take them out to dinner. Well, that thought wouldn't occur if I was stewing about in, in resentment toward others for the previous hour to my jogging or run or walking. Right. I have no doubt that you are correct, that that hour spent thinking good thoughts would make me a better person and would tend to bring about more positive results and more positive things would come my way. What I find odd about myself is that I think even if I dropped dead at the end of an hour, I would have made the universe a better place for that hour. I feel like what's in my mind connects to something larger in the moment. And so uh, thinking something positive and great expands the greatness or the love or the positive energy that exists, even as I think it, that it's not necessarily dependent on what it will cause me to do afterwards or what what effect it will have on my mind afterwards. And I don't have any explanation for it or reason for it, but it is something that I believe. Yeah, I and I'm completely with you on all this. Well, then let me ask you, because you deal with literature all the time, and especially I'm reminded often because of my interest in Tolstoy of Russian literature, Mm -hmm. uh, addressing the big, big questions of life. And one thinks of Tolstoy or Dostoevsky as being tormented on a daily, if not hourly or minute by minute basis of what these big questions are. And I know that for me, there was a near-death asthma attack that I had now several decades ago that, when I, that I was put into the hospital for a week. And when I came out, I had a mini- Saul to Paul-like epiphany, and and that it's completely shifted so that I do have the connection that you're talking about, which is I'm alone in the car and I'm thinking good thoughts, and the universe is somehow better for it. How do you, have you ever had any event that has kind of nudged you over from skepticism to qualified or even unqualified belief in something that cannot in this realm exactly be explained. Yes, I have. So if I were looking at one piece of evidence to address someone who said, you know, this is, we are just animals living on a rock and that's how it is. And everything is, there's a rational explanation for everything. There are no mysteries. There's nothing in the spiritual realm that you're talking about. If they were telling me that I have one thing that happened to me that I hold on to, to remind me that there may be something there that I don't 
understand, but that is consistent with how I sort of have vaguely believed that the cosmos is ordered. And that is has to do with my grandfather, who was very important to me and who I was with when he was in the hospice, when he was near death. And we had several days to be with him. And I would go in and hold his hand and look into his eyes. And he couldn't really, he had sort of returned to childhood in his mind. He would sometimes say things about his mother who had passed away decades before, or he would talk about his brothers. And it wasn't clear that he could recognize us or, or you know, where he was in his mind. But his eyes were so penetrating and were struggling. You could see the fight that was in his eyes. And this was a guy who had always been very feisty, very competitive, very full of energy. He was a, a teacher and a basketball coach, and he just was always, always fighting. He was, all, he was small, a small person, and he was always taking on people who were bigger. And he was always, he just loved to be alive more than anyone I've ever met. And so to see him kind of just fighting to hang on. And he would fight to recognize who was looking at him. And he would just stare into your eyes and he would grip your hand and he couldn't process things, but you could tell that he he wanted to be there. He wanted to be there with you. So then he passed away. And we all had the funeral and the family. It's not a large family, but it was a, a big event for this town that he had lived in. And we spent several days with people parading through and we had, you know, all the events of a funeral and everything. We came back to the house and now it was just the small core. So, you know, all my childhood, we had Christmases and Easter's and everything in this living room with a small group of close family. So there were always eight of us and now there were seven. And we walked into the living room. This was the first time that the, the core group was together after this, all of these festivities of the funeral for the last several days. And it was just the family again. We walked into the living room and he had on the mantle a trophy of a hole in one. He was a big golfer. And he had a, a mantle on the trophy on the mantle of a little plastic one with a golf ball stuck in the middle of it. And it was because he had hit a hole in one at his club. And it was something he was very proud of because his wife, my grandmother, had happened to hit a hole in one before he did. So for years, hers was on the mantle and his wasn't, or he didn't have one. And so people would tease him about it or, you know, it, it was kind of a, it was a big deal when he got it. And we walked into that living room where it was just the core of us. and. As soon as we were alone, the ball popped out of the hole-in-one trophy and it fell onto the floor and it rolled to the chair where he had always sat, his recliner, sort of in the middle of the room. And we just looked at each other and my grandmother, who's very practical-minded, said, oh, they're must be a gust of wind, and <laughs> we're indoors. And my father said, has that ever happened before? And she said, no, I, no, I guess not. In 15 years, they had had it there. It had never happened before. So then we were sitting there, to, you know, we put it back, and we were sitting there talking, 
And we had been very sad for the past few days. But we started telling stories about the people who had come through and, and you know, the catching up that had been done and everything. And someone told, told some story and the group of us laughed. And while we were laughing, the doorbell rang. And my father was standing right by the door. So he opened it up and there was nobody there. And he went out onto the porch and he looked up and down the street. Nobody. Nobody there, nobody who could have pressed the doorbell. And my grandmother said, oh, it must be a malfunction or of electrical surge. And my father said, has that ever happened before? And she said, no, no, I guess not. You know, since they had been living there 50 years, the doorbell had never just rung. And so it made me think that this guy who loved life so much, loved being on planet Earth as much as he did, and loved the people around him as much as he did, was transitioning to whatever came next, but he was hanging on a little bit, that he wanted us to know that he was still with us, that he was okay, and that he wished he could be part of our group and participate in the the laughter and the joy and all of the things that he had loved about life. And it's, you know, I'm sure there's someone will scoff at this and say there was probably it was coincidence and that we, you know, were misinterpreting everything. But for me, it was enough. That's enough to to feel like for this guy and maybe for all of us, there's this possibility. And so, Jack, these two incidents would seem to be evidence that you have accepted that your grandfather had a soul that was trying to express itself. Do you think that, do you think that you, do you think all of us have souls? I do. Yeah. I don't think he was special. I think maybe he was uh, special only in the sense that his uh, zest for life was what made him cling a little longer. To it, but I I do think that if he was allowed to, or if 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 his destiny was to pass into this other realm, that that is what will happen to all of us. Stories like that make me think that I should plan with the people closest <laughs> to me a signal. But then right. I also think that maybe a, a, if the God figure would say, no, we don't, we don't, no, you. we don't do the loopholes like that. It's like, <laughs> that's why I think that Houdini, after he died Halloween night, 1927, and he had promised his wife that he was going to send her signs that he was still alive and she never got anything. And I, and I think maybe the Lord of the universe decided that Houdini had, had played his last trick. Right. And maybe there would be no supernatural <laughs> tricks. And, and also one more thing I'm thinking about, and I want to get back to history of literature for a second, because I have received, I've had so many hours of pleasure, edification, feeling less alone in, in the world, especially during the pandemic when I would take a long walk and just start following on the list of all the different episodes you've done, the ones of people who interest me, Shakespeare, James Joyce, Del, it could be uh, uh, any uh, uh, Eugene O'Neill. I think you have a Eugene O'Neill. You've got 
several different people who are favorites of mine. And so I looked up, that was the first thing I did was just began looking up. And then I went to the beginning and tried to work my way through it and got, and got to a certain point. And now I pick and choose the episodes that I'd listened to, but there seems to be, tell me if you think that there is a comparison between if, if one has an interest in, in the questions that we've been talking about and one approaches, let's say Hebrew Bible gospels, doubted Jing, uh, Mahabharata, uh, Bhagavad Gita, whatever, that there is a rigor that one must be willing to go through that is not to me dissimilar to if you, if people who love theater wish to get a better knowledge of Shakespeare or someone who wishes to get a better knowledge of Homer. And you have to go through certain leaps with Shakespeare. You, people who speak English need to go through the fact that many of the words that he used are no, are no longer used or no longer used for the meaning that, that he intended when he wrote them. And so you have to work at it. But, but my experience in life has been that for certain people, the gospels are one, Shakespeare is another the effort rewards one. Yes, I agree. I, hmm. what I like about literature is that it stretches me out, that it, it calls forth all my powers, as Dr. Johnson might say. It, it expands me. It makes me think more and it makes me feel more. And it asks me to live with difficult questions and explore difficult questions and see what I think about them. And it also asks me to, it engages me emotionally as well. And it makes me cry and it makes me laugh and it makes me sort of reach the limits of what I can reach. And what I appreciate about it when I look back at the history of literature is seeing authors who have this in mind and readers who are responding to it for centuries. I love reading about the different ways Shakespeare has been interpreted or embraced by different people in different eras, or Jane Austen, or books that are beloved and why, and, and hearing that people were weeping when they would read Dickens, or they couldn't wait to get the next installment. And, and reading that someone was, knew a woman who was in China, in Beijing during the Tiananmen Square uh, standoff, and she would go home every evening and read Proust. And just the feeling of why she's doing that, why poetry is, is making people respond in the way that they are, is what fascinates me about literature. And it is kind of the closest thing I have to religion. It's what makes me it's what I admire about the way literature works and the way people respond to it is that it, it exposes just how human they are and what their limitations are, but also what they're capable of. If you could tell the world there is one particular book or a song or even simply a quote that if they were to expose themselves to it, to consider it, it might also help them lead their lives? It's a very good question. 
I usually don't like to make recommendations or put uh, required reading on anyone's list because I think life is too short and, and people come to it when they come to it. And there's not one particular thing that I would say you have to read this or you have to read that. Well, I always well, in the world that of, a little bit. It, in the world of my question, you are not a fascist yeah. dictator who will have the power to impose <laughs> right. this so upon I thought the about populace. This. It's more like you will be a respected person who, by putting it out, it, it's like a literary critic who, by praising a new work by an unknown author, gets that book read. So here's, here's how I want to answer. I thought about this, and I thought about who would it be? Chekhov. Would it be Graham Greene's The End of the Affair? There's books that have been so important to me and authors that have been so important to me, and I want to have the, the, the smart answer or the right answer. And then I thought maybe it should be Bach, or maybe it should be Pavarotti singing. or you know, All these different things came to my mind. And the one that I landed on might strike you as a little bit bizarre. I hope you follow me through with this and and let me explain a little bit. It might be the aging Gen Xer in me, but the thing that I keep thinking about is Prince's Purple Rain album. And it's something I never get tired of listening to. It takes me on this journey and I'm fascinated by Prince as this figure who had so much musical just these outrageous musical gifts he he anyone with gifts like his would be in the position of wondering how that happened i think that you how is it that i am better at playing the guitar i'm a better singer i'm a better composer a better arranger i'm i've been given this talent i i can do anything with it how is it that i'm given this these almost supernatural powers and what do i do with this and prince had this longing for god and this love of jesus and yet he was overwhelmed by sex and relationships and his own childhood and his past and in that album the purple rain album i've listened to that and i feel like i can hear him working all of that out that he's going as far as he can go with his talent and with his questions to expand himself as far as he can in his realm of music and in his spiritual seeking. And when I listen to something like that, I feel inspired. I feel overwhelmed. I feel humble. I feel like it is getting me to ask questions that will expand where I will expand myself, that I'll be a better person for wrestling with the questions that it provokes in me, not necessarily the questions that Prince is asking or anything that he's teaching me, but just seeing his example and how he's out there and 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 what he's trying to do and hearing it come through in his voice and in his music, I find it like a man-made sunset. That it's something that I just, it brings tears to my eyes to contemplate it. And I get that with literature too, but the, the thing that I, I admire about the, or that I, the reason why I would recommend the Prince Purple Rain album is that I kind of turn my brain off in a way. I'm not trying to overthink it the way that I tend to do with literature, that it's, it's something that I can, 
listen to and admire and take it on its terms and just be humble in its presence. That, Jack, is a perfect answer. I hope that listeners will go back to Purple Rain and even if they are sitting alone in their car for an hour and listening to it and and putting aside their vengeful thoughts of hatred against their enemies, they will become better people. And that is a good thing. And Jack Wilson, I tremendously enjoy talking to you always. I enjoy listening to History of Literature. And I thank you so much for being part of Ye Gods. Thank you, Scott. It was my pleasure. I am very grateful to my guest, Jack Wilson. I end each show with a semi-sermonette that I call In My Homily Opinion. And my goal is for it to spark you to email me at yegodspodcast at gmail.com. And then I may respond next week, and we will have started a dialogue. So what about Jack's thought experiment? Do our good thoughts impact the universe? Or are we like the tree falling in the forest that nobody hears? Each day I do a guided meditation on the Waking Up app by Sam Harris. And sometimes Sam invokes the word meta and not in the sense of Mark Zuckerberg. Sam will ask us to conjure up a face, perhaps a person we don't even know, and then to silently project to them the hope that today they will be happy or that they will be free from suffering. I don't see how such thoughts could hurt, but could they actually help someone else? And maybe that's enough. Just if while someone's thinking those thoughts, they're doing no harm, but maybe also there might be more to this idea than meets the eye. Perhaps the answer to Jack's question depends on where each of us are coming from. If you don't think there's a God, then when you're alone with your thoughts, then you really are just alone with your thoughts, perhaps. But if you do think there's a God, as there well might be, nobody knows life's a mystery, then maybe your thoughts, your prayers, jet stream on a wavelength to a sacred feedback loop and then maybe thoughts in empty cars get hooked up to a vast intergalactic internet or not. What do you think? Beam me your thoughts or just make sure they reach me by emailing me at yegodspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.